Hi folks, Neil here. We want to help answer all your questions about Rome. That's why you can listen to this episode in the Circa app for iPhone and get all the show notes, pictures, maps, and links you need to find everything we tell you about in this Rome guide. Best of all, in the Circa app, you can message a Circa concierge and you can get any question about Rome answered by real people right here. The best way to visit the Colosseum, how to get around, where to find an absolutely beautiful carbonara. We're giving you a friend to ask anywhere in the world. Real people, no AI ever. And for a limited time, it's completely free. The Circa Travel app is available in the App Store right now or at circatravel.com. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Welcome to Circa. This is the story of a stunning neighborhood full of culture, incredible craftsmen and food, but it's also a neighborhood with a dark history. This is the story of the Jewish ghetto. We will take you from the origin of the word ghetto, now used worldwide, to the Second World War, to the Renaissance, and back again. This neighborhood carries a lot. With that in mind, we will be telling you a lot. But don't worry, there will be maps, notes, and info on the places mentioned in this episode in the Circa app. So just sit back, put your headphones on. E andiamo al ghetto. Circa. Love the world you live in and we'll help you explore it. Romans call it il ghetto. Tucked between ancient ruins and buzzing with culinary delicacies, incredible craftsmen, beautiful clothing and trendy spots, the ancient Jewish ghetto of Rome is a must-see. The ghetto is a small neighborhood with one central square, but it's steeped in history, in traditions, and in delightful things to eat. As you dig your teeth into the famous carciofi alla giudia, these are fried artichokes, which are a specialty here, look around. You might see plaques on the wall. They had not even begun to live, says one. Here lived Nella Montefiori, deported and killed, says another. At this moment, you might realize, if you haven't already, that Rome is a city which cannot escape its past. This neighborhood has been the home of suffering, persecution, human rights violation, but also of survival, love and community building. Whilst listening to a story about this place, I heard a man ask, where was God? And another answer him, where was man? 
I'm sure you've heard the word ghetto. Often it refers to a rundown area of a town or city, or an area with low or non-existent property value. Usually, in this context, it refers to a high crime area. A ghetto is essentially a segregated area, whether for economic, political or social reasons. It is a place rooted in oppression. The origin of the word has a place in my country, Italy, in Venice to be precise, where the first ghetto in the world was created in 1516. The ghetto was the district of Venice where Jews were obliged to reside during the period of the Venetian Republic. In medieval times, this was the area of the city where public foundries were concentrated, and in the Venetian dialect, foundry is translated as ghetto, hence the name. The Venetian ghetto has remained the center of Venice's Jewish community and is home to synagogues and other religious institutions. The second oldest ghetto in the world was ordered to be organized here, in Rome. The community of people living here is one of the oldest in the world and very well integrated in Rome. In fact, the Jewish community was here 200 years before Christ. the beginning of the Roman ghetto. This ghetto is a tapestry of its past. All over the neighborhood, there are small brass plaques set among the cobblestones called stumbling stones. These stones, almost 400 in Rome, are usually found in front of the homes of the victims, often entire families, who were taken by the Nazi fury. The plaques bear the name, date of birth, date of arrest, place of deportation, if known, and date of death, if known. For various reasons, some of this information is often unknown. If you don't know what they are, you probably wouldn't notice the stumbling stones. But now that you do, try spotting them as you walk, and you can appreciate what they mean. Today, Il Ghetto is a neighborhood of pleasures and beauty, but it does not forget its history, and it honors the memory of those who were persecuted for their beliefs. This neighborhood is a reminder of the darkness of human existence, but also a reminder of human resilience and compassion. The segregation and persecution of the Jews, which is often associated with the Second World War, actually began much, much earlier than this. The Jewish ghetto of Rome is located in Rione Sant'Angelo, near Trastevere. In the 16th century, this area was already largely populated by Jews. In 1555, Pope Paul IV ordered the construction of the ghetto in this neighborhood, revoking all the rights granted to Roman Jews. The ghetto originally had two entrances fitted with heavy iron gates that were opened at sunrise and closed at sunset. During evening hours, one could not get in or out. You can still see the remnants where the gates once stood. 
the stone pillars still have iron hinges. Look for them on Piazza Costaguti. Segregation and Resilience The Eternal City had Jewish residents as far back as the 2nd century BC. But the strengthening of the pontific power over time and the growing prejudice carried by some of the popes led to the decision to segregate the Jewish community of Rome in the 1500s. The construction of the ghetto was fast and sudden. When it was first constructed, it hosted around 2,000 people. That number grew as more Jews were excluded from the Christian neighborhoods in and around the city. When the ghetto was established, the Jewish community was subject to a series of rules. The obligation to reside within the ghetto and to always carry a distinctive sign of belonging to the Jewish community. The men had to wear a special cap. The women had to wear easily recognizable articles of clothing, such as scarves. Both had to be a grayish-blue color. Jews were banned from owning property, and they had to sell the properties they did own to Christians. They were also prohibited to engage in any kind of trade except that of rags and clothes. This rule gave rise to what became a traditional Jewish skill set. Women became incredibly good at reusing and upcycling clothes and accessories, which were then resold. Jews were also forbidden from engaging in the buying and selling of real estate. The Jews of the time instead turned to business that involved moving assets of a different kind, gold and other forms of money, which in turn gave rise to the liquidity that was used by the popes themselves when they needed loans. In the ghetto, there could only be one synagogue, and the Jews were banned from ever building another one. This neighborhood, which many may imagine to be large, was actually just three hectares. It is all centered around a main road called Via Portico d'Ottavia. You will hear the waiters shout, Carciofi alla Giudia, Carciofi alla Giudia, as you walk down this road. Restaurants are buzzing with people, many of them tourists. Sit for a spritz if you want, but choose well where to eat. We have some local spots for you at the end of this episode. Enjoy the vibe! This street takes its name from an ancient porch, Portico d'Ottavia. A construction of stone that dates back to the ancient Roman era. This was the center of town, where all religious and commercial activities took place. This ancient structure today looks like a temple, with tall carved colonnades. And this is where the Temple of Juno and Jupiter stood. Take a walk around the beautiful ruins and you will find a structure that looks a lot like the Colosseum. This is Teatro Marcello, also known as the Little Colosseum to us Romans. An ancient theatre built by Julius Caesar before the Colosseum, these ruins have survived fires, wars and plagues. And their history continues to affect the culture. Let me explain. During the Middle Ages, this area housed a fish market. The Tiber was very near, so the fishermen from Ostia could come here with their boats and unload their catch. Roman fishmongers have always been numerous, 
and one of the most important markets was that of the Portico d'Ottavia, where the famous fish stones, in use at the time for displaying goods to the public, have been found. Sins of gluttony for fish were so frequent that even Dante wrote about his passion for eels. Fish scraps were piled up near the church of Sant'Angelo in Pescheria at Portico d'Ottavia. The majority of the population at the time was poor, and so the women would collect the scraps from the market. Head, bones, guts. The only way to use the scraps was to cook them with water. And so, fish stock, or broth, became a Roman staple. And today, this rich soup gives an umami taste to dishes. In restaurants in this area, look for baccalà in pastella, which is codfish in batter, or the aliciotti con indivia, which is a sort of souffle made with anchovies. This method of using the scraps, the offcuts and the less premium pieces and turning them into something delicious is a long-standing tradition in Rome. Italians call it cucina povera, and fish broth definitely belongs to this tradition. The operating fish market was moved from the Portico d'Ottavia to Piazza San Teodoro in 1885, after the unification of Italy. The ghetto is stunning. Roam around these streets here with the awareness that this place is steeped in the resilience of people who were stripped of their rights, forced to live in poverty, and yet survived. The Jews of Rome are some of the proudest Romans I've ever met. Many of the older generation today have stories to tell, and I'm here to tell you some of them. Mussolini's dictatorship. As far as domestic politics are concerned, the burning issue is race. Here too, we will adopt the necessary solutions. Those who make us believe that we have obeyed imitations or begged for suggestions are poor fools to whom we do not know whether to direct our contempt or pity. With these words, on the 18th of September 1938, Benito Mussolini, the fascist dictator of Italy, announced the racial laws. What he is referring to here with obeying imitations is that people thought he was a copycat. He was often accused of being Adolf Hitler's lapdog. Mussolini had actually started as a journalist and part of the Socialist Party, with quite a tolerant stance towards Italian Jews. So it's a sad turn of history that he became the fascist dictator we now know for entirely the opposite views. In the first years of the 20th century, the Jewish community was very well integrated into Roman life. In 1905, Alessandro Fortis became the first Jewish Prime Minister of Italy. Two more Italian Jews would follow in his footsteps, leading the country. In the beginning, the Jews' relationship with the fascist regime was good. Most Italian Jews did not oppose the rise to power of fascists. At least, they did not oppose it more vigorously than other Italians. Surprisingly, many Jews actually became part of the regime in the early years. 
During the years preceding the racial laws, Italy was one of the most liberal European countries when it came to the treatment of the Jews. In the first years after the First World War, Mussolini's speeches were generally far from anti-Semitic. But then, something changed. In May of 1938, Adolf Hitler came to visit Rome to consolidate the alliance between the fascist and Nazi regimes. The whole city prepared for it. And many who opposed the fascist regime knew this was the beginning of the end. A little side note. You can see an incredible take on that particular day in the 1977 film Una giornata particolare by Ettore Scola. It stars the wonderful Sofia Loren and Marcello Mastroianni and is a beautiful showcase of the bitter sweetness that marks Italian films from that time. Though many historians differ on whether the racial laws were influenced or pushed by Hitler, what we know is that he was concerned about Mussolini's ignorance of what he called the Jewish problem. The idea that if the Jews were not stopped, they would eventually rule the entire world. On July 14, 1938, the Manifesto degli Scienziati Razzisti, meaning the Manifesto of the Racial Scientists, was published. The document, signed by 10 of Italy's most renowned scientists and doctors, and drafted by Benito Mussolini, emphasizes the importance of maintaining different races, and the idea that there was a racial hierarchy. Quote, There is now a pure Italian race, and this purity of blood is the greatest title of nobility of the Italian nation. End quote. According to this manifesto, the Jews of Italy did not belong to this race. It is incredible to see the danger of one powerful man and the fragility of human rights in one document. Whether Hitler influenced Mussolini or not, on the 17th of November 1938, the racial laws were approved. Between their manifesto and the laws, a couple of decrees had come out that expelled non-Italian Jews from the country. When the racial laws were imposed, the Jews were then forced to register on special lists. They were excluded from military service and could no longer marry citizens of what was considered the pure race. They could no longer take care of non-Jewish children and many were fired from their jobs. The son of Major Lattes tells the story of how his dad, who had fought in the Spanish Civil War in 1936-38, came back to ask what his next steps were. The colonel looked at him and told him that as he was of the Jewish race, he could not be reinstated in the army. Lattes responded, I am Italian of Jewish religion, and I fought for this country. Here are my scars. He was still refused and thus came home to Italy unemployed. He and his family eventually had to escape the ghetto and live with false identities until the war was over. Many Jews were forced to close their businesses or sell them to non-Jewish people. 
land, jobs and opportunities were limited drastically, leaving many Italian Jews in dire conditions. With the racial laws, the fascist regime targeted the rights of the Jewish people. One day, the leaders of the Italian and Roman Jews, two men by the names of Dante Almasi and Ugo Foa, were summoned to Herbert Kapler's office. Kapler was in charge of Hitler's SS forces in occupied Italy. He told them that they were in danger, that they were considered subhuman, but that he would spare them if they could deliver him 50 kilos of gold. Jews and non-Jews alike, in a burst of human solidarity, contributed to the collection in an attempt to save the lives of the Jews of Italy. People offered wedding rings, family heirlooms, anything made of gold. The bounty was paid to the headquarters of the German security police in Via Tasso. But of course, Kepler never kept his word, nor did he have any intention of doing so. And on the 16th of October, the deportation began. This memory is kept alive in the synagogue of Rome, where if they'll let you, you can visit a small room where candles are kept burning all the time. They will burn until the gold that was paid to the Nazis is returned. What happened in October 1943 was an evolution. The regime went from this to targeting Jewish lives. Hi, everyone. Circa's recruiting new concierges. A Circa concierge is a friend to ask anywhere in the world. Real people, on the ground, never bots. If you want to be a concierge for your city, go to circatravel.com to sign up. Let's jump into Peppa's world of play. Look for spring flowers, hunt for muddy puddles, and bravely explore exciting places with Peppa play sets. Peppa Pig. Inspiring kid confidence. October 16th, 1943. It was a rainy day in Rome, almost like the sky knew what was going to happen. At sunrise, the persecution by German forces, facilitated by the fascist regime, began. The war had arrived to the Jewish ghetto. The Nazis sent trucks into the 26 districts of Rome, where they were joined by Kapler's men. Kapler was a German SS officer and the chief of police in occupied Italy. On that October morning, the Nazis planned to capture all Jews of any age and in any physical condition. Operations began at 5.30 a.m. Small teams of three to six officers began visiting assigned addresses. In the area of the old ghetto, all access roads were closed. In other areas, the gates were guarded. Some men remained on guard at the truck, whilst others raided buildings and flats, surprising people still sleeping in the cloudy autumn morning. 
The victims were given a note with instructions about their imminent deportation. They had 20 minutes to prepare their suitcases and leave their homes. Jewish people at the time were not allowed radios, so many of them were completely unaware of what was happening that morning. This is the story as told by activist Attilio Lattes, who was only a child on this day. In the morning, his father was alerted by an uncle that the Germans were coming. When he went downstairs, the doorman told him it was too late, that the German police were already there. Trapped, the doorman told him to go downstairs to the basement, where he would find someone who could help him and his family. Attilio, his father and his mother, followed the instructions of the doorman and headed to the basement, where they found a man who signaled for them to be quiet. The man indicated a cartoon poster on the wall, a caricature of Mussolini as Hitler's puppy, both crushing the head of a Jewish man. The man removes the poster and reveals a hole in the wall. Attilio's father has no idea of where this tunnel would take them, but they had no other choice than to trust this stranger. They crawled through the tunnel and found themselves in the sewers of Rome under the Tiber, where rats, human remains and other dead animals made the stench almost unbearable, but they continued on. An hour later, they emerged from a manhole in Montemario Forest, in the middle of the woods. They could hear the Nazis nearby still searching for Jewish families to deport. Attilio and his family survived the next few months under German occupation with false documents. On that dark day, 122 Jewish people were taken from the ghetto of Rome and sent to German concentration camps. Only 16 came back. None of the people who returned were children. It is important to understand the streets you're walking on and the stories they carry, to respect and honor the lives lost. This is how we ensure that compassion endures, so that history will never repeat itself. Reconciliation with the Catholic Church on the 13th of April, 1986, John Paul II became the first pope in more than 500 years since the Apostle Peter to visit a Jewish synagogue. He did so in Rome, at the Roman synagogue. This beautiful, pale, yellow, holy place was inaugurated in 1904 and is one of the largest synagogues in Europe. It is also called Il Tempio Maggiore. You can visit the synagogue today Tours are given in English almost every day. The building also contains the Museum of the Jewish Community of Rome and the Spanish Temple, a small Sephardic synagogue. Pope John Paul II was welcomed with joy and open arms by the chief rabbi Eliotov. For many Jews, John Paul II is the pontiff who has done the most to restart a Jewish-Christian dialogue. The soul of that meeting can be heard in this statement by the Pope. 
which has since become famous. The Church of Christ discovers its connections with Judaism by scrutinizing its own mystery. The Jewish religion is not extrinsic to us, but in a way, it is intrinsic to our religion. We therefore have a relationship with it that we do not have with any other religion. You are our beloved brothers and, in a way, one could say, our elder brothers. The Tastes of the Ghetto The ghetto today is an astonishing area which isn't burdened with the atrocities of segregation and persecution, but rather thrives on the uncrushable spirit of those who survived. The ghetto radiates persistence. It's as if the cobblestones and walls have been covered by a sheer layer of hope, one that protects and embraces the families of this neighborhood. This is not to say the past has been forgotten, far from it. But the forces of segregation and prejudice did not win. This is the spirit of the ghetto, a heart which will not be conquered. Walk into the ghetto and experience its fascinating beauty and also its liveliness and homeliness. The streets and alleys have been packed tightly together over thousands of years. The shops are nestled within the walls, the restaurants huddled together, one next to the other. To walk into the ghetto is to walk into a part of Rome where time seems to have stopped and globalization doesn't seem to exist. You won't find big name brands or franchises, things that are impersonal and feel foreign. You'll find family-run businesses, historical crafts and niche boutiques. The ghetto is true to itself and welcomes you to enjoy it. Enter it from Piazza Capranica and it'll really feel like you're walking into a different town altogether. The buildings aren't that different, and the roads aren't much smaller than other Roman neighborhoods. But it just feels like its own place. You'll walk through Via dei Falegnami, which means the Carpenter's Street, a beautiful street full of little shops and bars. You'll have noticed by now, a lot of streets in Rome are named after the shops or crafts for which they're known. Another famous street in the ghetto is Via dei Funari, the Road of the Rope Twisters, so named for the craftsmen who created fishing lines and the ropes to string up sails. The beauty of these names is that after a while they sort of lose their initial meaning, becoming a given name in their own right. If you're into linen, there's an incredible shop called Stay Store that'll grant you all your most luxurious linen desires. Via dei Funari leads straight to Piazza Mattei, the Piazza of the Turtles. It's centered around a beautiful fountain, often covered in moss, where carved stone turtles frolic near the running water. If you decide to stop and grab a bite to eat, note that all restaurants and stores within the Roman ghetto are kosher. The area is so crowded with restaurants, it's not hard to find someplace delicious to eat. But it's also quite easy to end up in a tourist trap. 
If you look at restaurant reviews, you'll probably see mixed comments. Everything from fabulous to not worth the hype. Sometimes even the best places have bad nights. But we have some suggestions for you that are almost certainly sure bets. If you're feeling like something sweet, you have to stop at Pasticceria Boccione. It's so well known it doesn't even have a sign above its store. We'll put this in the notes for you so you can find it. It's a family-run business over 200 years old, and you can taste the care with which the recipes were passed down, generation by generation. It famously started as a traditional pastry shop with cinnamon almond biscuits and tarts and sweet pizzas drizzled with almonds, pine nuts, raisins and candied fruits. There are so many more things on offer now. And aside from the biscuits, I'd suggest you let go of any plans or recommendations and just order whatever you feel like at the moment. It's all really good. Unless you're there early in the morning, then you have to get their cornetti and have a proper Roman breakfast with cappuccino e cornetto. This pasticceria is owned by the Limentani family, a very prominent Roman Jewish lineage whose surname resonates in any Roman's ear. Although many don't know them as the owners of the bakery, everyone here knows them as the owners of one of the most prolific wedding registry shops in Rome. If you want to take a look at the endless sets of plates, tableware and cutlery, walk less than 100 meters and you will be right at the shop's doorstep. If you're feeling fancy and wish to experience a high-end restaurant in the ghetto, head over to Piperno. Piperno is one of those restaurants whose name slides off of any Roman's tongue when talking about the best, most historic restaurants in the city. It is a staple, an evergreen, a colossus in the culinary scene. Be prepared for the most classic of decors. Dark green walls, white tablecloths, comfortable wooden chairs. The restaurant itself is a lullaby for sore ears and an antidote for hungry mouths. Try their fritti, which literally means fried stuff. You won't regret it. I promise. And book ahead. If you're looking for a special setting for dinner, head over to Il Giardino Romano. It's another landmark restaurant in the area with a beautiful internal courtyard surrounded by statues. It was famously visited by Anthony Bourdain, who thoroughly enjoyed his fried artichokes. Nonna Betta and Renato Alghetto are also historic members of the ghetto food scene. And you definitely can't go wrong if you book a table at either one of them. Nonna Betta, the name itself meaning Grandma Betta, short for Elizabeth, is a cozy and intimate space where you can order a tagliatelle alla gricia with dried meat and artichokes that feel like it has been cooked in your nonna's kitchen. A gricia is a carbonara without eggs, so mostly guanciale and pecorino. And this version is a unique but also traditional take on it. If I were to describe pasta plates as family members, I'd say gricia is the carbonara's quieter yet equally delightful cousin. 
If, on the other hand, you're headed to Renato, opt for the second courses. The meats and vegetables, that's where the restaurant truly shines. After tasting their fantastic hummus with meat, opt for the old-time classic chicken with bell peppers. One of the things I love doing in the ghetto is taking a stroll along these streets after dinner. The Portico d'Ottavia is stunning to see under the moonlight. The path you walk through when visiting just seems so magical. Although initially built close to the 2nd century BC, it was completely restored and reconstructed in the 20th century by Ottaviano as a tribute to his sister Ottavia. Now that's brotherly love, right? I haven't ended an episode with a shop, but I think I might do it just this once. Because there's something about this shop that speaks of the whole of the ghetto, its past and perhaps its future. If you're walking around during the day, hidden in a little street in the ghetto is a shop that'll wake up the child inside of you. It's called Il Museo del Louvre, the Louvre Museum. Yes, it doesn't really make sense for a shop found in the center of Rome, but perhaps it just doesn't make sense to us Romans. Perhaps, if you end up there, you could ask the man who named it himself, Giuseppe Casetti. It's a gallery-slash-bookshop whose owner is a phenomenal character in his own right. A photographer who sees people not just through his lens, but through their stories. It's a really small shop, a large corridor, if you will, filled with old books and handwritten letters. And most beautiful of all, thousands of small photographs taken by thousands of hands across thousands of cities, all shot over a period of 100 years. The owner collects old photo albums, whether they be his, of people he knows, people who gifted them to him, or even just albums found in flea markets across Europe. He goes through them one by one and picks out the photographs that speak to him, the ones that tell him a story. At times, they are astonishing photographs, fit to be postcards found in the best of museum gift shops. At times, they tell of quiet, everyday moments. These moments that aren't at all special, but that fill the heart nonetheless. They are hand-glued on beautiful, thick, rough-edged paper. They are the history of unknown people, moments of an unknown life, and they fit right in the palm of your hand. This is what the ghetto is to me. Not walls, not cobblestones, not buildings. It's people. People who are deeply Roman and their untold stories. Thanks for listening to our story about the Jewish ghetto in Rome. I hope you leave this episode with a bit of knowledge, a thirst to know more, and a full heart. Whether you're heading to Rome right now, sometime in the near future, or would just like to learn all about a place we truly love, 
you'll get instant access to the full guide plus new episodes on a regular basis when you subscribe to Circa. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or download the Circa app where you can also get pictures and maps and notes on everything in the episode and more. Maybe you'll want to sample our guides for Barcelona, London, New York, LA and many, many more. Circa. Love the world you live in and we'll help you explore it.